Okay. Um. Oh, I know what the second thing was. Go ahead. It's just um, generally what I try to do is um, send you guys an outline in place of the outline that I would put on a board whenever we met in a classroom. That's, I, I've always used a board all my life. I just think having visual images and an outline helps all of us. Um, uh, my, my practice has always been my life not to go on previous notes. I try to reread works because I know my reading of them changes over time. I, 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 I haven't read a number of books that we've dealt with in the last year in 20, 30 years. And we did Scarlet Letter. I was not going to do Scarlet Letter. Suzanne kept pushing me to do it, and I finally did it. I saw things in it that just shocked me. That just, And I did my PhD in Scarlet Letter. Just shocked me. So my habit is to try to get back and read it. I, I don't always do it as well. But I try to put together some notes because we don't have a blackboard. And sometimes they're more rushed than I'd like. And I'm so tonight I'm, I've got some things on my mind since I sent you those notes. Tomorrow morning I'll go back to the notes and I will revise them. You don't have to go back and look at them. But for those of you for whom those notes are useful, just know I will go back and revise them some to, to try to clarify in the direction that my own thinking is clarified just, you know, in the day since I, um, in the last couple of days since I've tried to do the reading for this, for this class. I generally try to put it off because I'm, I'm doing some other things that are really important for me. So I tend to put off the reading for the Monday night, Monday, Tuesday night groups until late. Um, anyway, just know I'm going to go back and revise those notes for anybody who, who, who wants to make use of them. Um, Tina, can you hear me? Tina. Can you hear me? And Maria. Maria. I can hear you. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Is that Mary Jane? Yes, hello. What a, good good to see you. Wow. The the Francis group I be, be on guard you guys. The Francis group is starting to take We're over waiting. here. <laughs> Okay, let's 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 start. Let's start. I reminded her we were online. I think. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, okay, um, the poem that I'm going to do tonight is taken from a long poem by um, um, W. H. Auden. Auden was a contemporary of um, Frost and Hemingway and that large group of people who met in Europe uh, to form that artistic community that, that got tagged, the lost generation. Um, they lived at a time, I'm not going to go into depth about this, we, 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 just, um, we just took a look at this when we were doing Hemingway because we did Old Man of the Sea a while ago and it was important to look at that group. Auden was a, um, a graduate, I can't remember if it was Cambridge or Oxford, but I, I think one of the brightest critics of the, of the 20th century. Um, I've never read an essay of his without coming out of it um, amazed at the clarity of his mind. Um, he was a poet. I think he's one of the most important. He belongs to that handful of really important poets. Um, 
Michelle, thank you. I would like to stay on the list, Mish. I don't know what to... Um, sorry, I've got these notes. Um, a brilliant, brilliant poet. Um, one of the interesting qualities to him as a poet um, that that makes him stand out in my mind is he was a graduate of the best educational system in England, Cambridge or Oxford, I can't remember which one. But there's no sign of anything pretentious or um, proper or fastidious the way I think you might expect from somebody who was a graduate of Oxford, England. But he also had this these ties with these Americans, Frost and Alan Tate and um, um, Hemingway, you know, the other people we've looked at, so that he was aware of how important these changes in language were that were taking place then, um, because America was well along in its effort to find a language of its own. Once it broke from Britain, it had to find an idiom that was distinct to its own character. So if you look at the writings of, of poets in the, in the first century after our revolution, they all sound like Engli Englishmen. You read Hemingway and people after Melville, you realize people are using language in a very different way. Um, Auden is English. Um, I'm going to read a section from this poem and you'll hear that it, um, his language is the language of common men. He's just speaking to ordinary people. The poem that I'm reading, or the, the, the lines that I'm reading, are from a poem called Hore Kononike. Um, the canonical hours. He structured this group of poems on the, on the hours of the monastic life. Um, you should, those of you who have who've gone into it and looked at it, you'll see it there. Um, the, the monastic um, um, life, um, you know, was a sequestered life. It retreated from the world. It spent a large part of its time in contemplation and prayer. And the prayers were divided through the day, took place throughout the day, and they were named according to the hours. So prime in early morning, terse, moving from early morning out into the day, sext dealt with the events of the world, knowns was usually mid-afternoon, vespers was early evening, compline, was at the close of the day. Compline from complete, it completes the day. And in the Compline prayers, the brothers would typically meditate over the affairs of the day and try to try to bring a sense of rest to them, to find a, to try to find Christ in them. Is that clear? So that the each prayer um, was devoted to a different way of standing in the day and responding to the day, but always with Christ in mind. Okay. So Auden writes this somewhat long poem called um, the Hore um, Kanonike. It, it's not, he's not praying. So he's not doing what the monks did at prayer, but he structures his poem according to those prayers and their hours, okay? I'm gonna take a section, a small section from what's called the Compline. Now, for, if, in case you haven't looked, this prayer is included in, the, in our box, you know, in, the, in the seat and box. It's in the poems. I think I included it also in the Virgil 
um, folder. So, and I think I included some exposition, some very brief expositions to help you go through it in, in case it's all strange to you. But I'm going to read a passage from the Compline, okay? Now, in this section, Auden is looking back over the day. Remember, it's evening. It's probably somewhere around 9. It's the close of the day. The brothers or the monks are meditating on the day. There would probably be a, what do you call it, when you, an examination of conscience. It would be a reflection of the day and finding your place in the day and Christ with you. Okay? So there are a number of stanzas in here. It begins with um, Auden saying, Now, as desire and the things desired cease to require attention, the day's over. He's letting things go. It's hopefully what most of us try to do in the evening. As seizing its chance, the body escapes section by section. It's as if part of us gradually lets go of the day. I'm sure we, most of us can identify with that. To join plants in their chaster peace, which is more to its real taste. Now a day is its past. Its last deed and feeling in should come the instant of recollection when the whole thing makes sense. It comes, but all I recall are doors banging, two housewives scolding, an old man gobbling, actions, words that could fit any tale, and I fail to see either plot or meaning. I cannot remember a thing between noon and three. That's his opening stanza. He'll go on now to, to, call, uh, um, to call to mind the events of the day. Okay? Now remember what he's, what he's talking about in this opening meaning is he tries to look back in the day. All he can find is chaos and scramble. Women quarreling, kids screaming, doors banging. Um, it reminds me of Eliot's line in the quartet's distraction by distraction by distraction. That it's just one thing after another claiming our attention so that we're left with this sense of frantic chaos at the end of the day and we want to bring it to peace. And more than that, we want to understand if there's some meaning to it. Yeah? If, if the day wasn't just meaningless. And that's got to become more important for anybody who believes in Christ because we're trying to find some way in which his life make, helps us make sense of what goes on in the chaos of a day. Okay? And he goes on, and this is the last stanza. This, I think it's the fourth stanza. It's the last stanza in the Compline section. And he ends with this question. Okay? Now, remember the title is Hore Canonicae, Emolitas viserit, viserit or viserit. The canonical hours Christ sacrificed, Christ is victorious. That's the title of the poem. The canonical hours sacrificed, Christ is victorious. So that's the, the germ, the principle unifying everything in the poem. Is that clear? Are we okay? Okay. So in the Compline, the end of the day, he's just laid out the, <laughs> the disarray, the confusion of a day 
and wanting to find some meaning in it. Okay? And then he ends with this stanza. Can poets, can men in television be saved? It's not easy to believe in a noble justice or pray in the name of a love whose name once forgotten. Libera me libera si, dear si. It's just some allusion to some si. There's some question about who that is. Um, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly. Think about how important that word is for an Englishman who don't do things properly. Um, um, pray in the name of a love whose name is one forgotten. And all poor SOBs who never do anything properly spare us in the, young, in the youngest day when all are shaken awake. Facts are facts. When that day comes, there's not going to be any fooling around about what was real or not. Shaken away, facts are facts, and I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three, that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide. Join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. Now just to, if all of you, if you don't have a copy of it, you can go online and just bring it up on your screen and look at it. But um, I just want to take a minute with this because it's all in very familiar language. It's talking about this youngest, this youngest day when everybody will be shaken awake and facts will be facts. Um, and everything that happened between noon and three will suddenly clear up. That we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide, join the dance as it moves in perichoresis, turns about the abiding tree. Okay, a couple questions. What's the picnic? What's this dance in perichoresis? I'm assuming that's a word that most of you don't know, but it's a word everybody should know. This dance in perichoresis around the abiding tree. So what's the picnic, what's the dance, and what's the abiding tree? Don't be afraid to guess, you guys. This is, we're all here to learn. That's why we're here. Heather, go ahead. You got something? Come on, jump. Could the picnic be the mass? That we're all able to come to the mass and let go of those things that tie us to this world and truly enjoy and truly become one with Christ in the Mass. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, and, and let me just be sure, because the Mass such a general term, but, I mean, exactly, because you, everybody knows what's at the center of the Mass is the banquet. It's mm -hmm. the Eucharist, it's the feeding. So the picnic, the picnic is the banquet. It's mm -hmm. the Mass, it's the feast that we join Christ in that banquet at his table. You know, however we imagine that in eternity. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you put it that way, Heather. Anybody else? What's, what's the perichoresis? Everybody join in this dance in perichoresis around the abiding tree. Do you all know what perichoresis? Does anybody know what it is? Besides those of you who were here last night. <laughs> Sue, you can't say anything. <laughs> Does anybody know what perichoresis is? 
Perichoresis is um, an early Greek term. It, 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 it would have been well known among the fathers of the church in the early history of the church. Perichoresis is a word that refers to the indwelling of persons in the Trinity. Um, you, all, you all, if you stay with us when we get to Dante, because we're going to get to Dante pretty quickly here. Um, those of you who've done Dante already know it. Um, but what happens as Dante moves up the Paradiso towards the end of the Divine Comedy is that we experience this strange thing. Dante's going to keep using these reflexive verbs. You're in mean. He's in othering. He's in godding. Beatrice anticipates Dante. She speaks what he's got in his mind before he even gives it words. Because what's taking place as they move closer to God, this is extraordinary, and it's a, it's a truth that the Catholic world, God bless, has just lost sight of badly. Um, as they move towards the Trinity, towards God and Christ and the Holy Spirit at the center of Trinity, they are indwelling one with another. They're participating more intimately in the inside of another because they're growing in love. So they're becoming one with another. The ultimate image of that is the three persons of the Trinity. What we learn from, this is St. Thomas, but if you think about the Trinity, it, it, it's, it should blow your mind, but it's, it's a truth that once you see it, it, it takes hold of you. St. Thomas says in his work on the Trinity, that the two persons in the Trinity are not greater than one. And one is not greater than two. They all share in one essence. So each one of them has the wholeness of the others in him. How can it be different? Because remember, we're not talking about physical reality as we know it here with time and space as we know it. We're talking about an ontological, metaphysical reality. In that metaphysical reality, the three persons of the Trinity absolutely share in each other. Each one contains the whole of the others. They perfectly indwell. How could it be different? For, if, for, the, for the words to mean God begot Christ, to beget, him, to beget him, timeless means he's one with him from eternity. The Arians believe that Christ, the, the Son, was created afterwards. That's a heresy. Because then he's not co-eternal with the Father. Is everybody with me? That's the Arian. I mean, that's one of the misreadings of the early church that the church had to correct. All three persons are perfectly one. There's one God, three persons. So they perfectly indwell with each other. There's nothing going on in the Son that doesn't go on in the Father and the Spirit, but they're distinct as persons. Christ is begotten. He's the image of the Father. The Spirit is the love between them. So even while they have a different identity, they share completely with the identities of the other. Okay, so perichoresis means indwelling one with another. And the abiding tree, it seems to me, is the cross. They're all dancing around what was the means of our redemption, of Christ going to a cross and dying and rising again. Okay, so I'll read it once more just to let you think about what he's saying. He begins in this stanza, Can poets... Can men in television, anybody, be saved? 
It's not easy to believe in unknowable justice or pray in the name of a love whose name one's forgotten. Um, and all poor SOBs who never do anything properly, spare us in the youngest day when all are shaken awake. Facts are facts. And I shall know exactly what happened today between noon and three that we too may come to the picnic with nothing to hide join the dance as it moves in perichoresis turns about the abiding tree beautiful way to close the day don't you think um wonderful day to close the day compline to complete the day anyway I, that poem i dropped it off in our box the uh, the c's box um it's in the francis box too so Look at it. It's a longer poem. My own, I would encourage all of you to read the whole thing. Break it into parts. You know, take each one of the parts. Um, prime, terse, sexed, or none. You know, all of them. Just take one a day for a week and read it and put it together and, um, and enjoy it. Um, okay. Um, um, let's turn to Virgil because we've got a good bit to do. Um, any any questions on the poems or, or poem or comment before we take a look at Virgil? You guys all staying safe? God, God, what an oh! By the way, I knew. God bless. God, <laughs> boy, do I need help. Boy, I've been laughing at myself since we first started, but it's getting worse and worse. It's just Suzanne's correcting me more and more all the time. It's just getting worse. I, it makes me shudder to think about what you guys have to put up with here. But um, I got a note from um, Tim Brennan at um, C's saying that they're hoping to get people back in classes the middle of this month so that classes, I guess, will resume. And I told Tim I would get back to him. Um, I mentioned this to you guys a week ago. I wasn't sure what's going to happen. Um, and I think I asked then if everybody, anybody would let me know if it's going to be a problem. Because I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I want to get back in a classroom where we're physically present in a body. But I also know, I mean, for Suzanne, for Suzanne and me, it's a half an hour drive. I don't know what it is for any of you. Some, for some of you, maybe farther. And I know there's a certain comfort of sitting at home in your own comfortable chair or on your own comfortable child couch and <clears throat> not having to go out at night. But but I think the idea right now is to get all of the adult classes and, you know, kids' classes back in the classroom the middle of the month. Um, so I think in the, they, they, they were setting for the middle of the month, they've got a scheduled activity in the class they've set aside for us. I'll check with Tim and get back to you. So um, last week I asked you to just, you know, wait to see what was going to happen, and I'd let you do it tonight. I can't tell you any more tonight, but um, at this point, let's plan to meet online again next week here in our chat room, and um, I I should have some news for you then. I'm assuming we will get back to a classroom. What I would like to ask of you is, and I'm and I know it might be awkward for some of you. I'd like to know honestly if this is going to present a problem. I know that there's a real convenience to doing this. Um, and safety. 
and, and safety, because a lot of people, I know a lot of people are really guarded, really guarded. Um, the numbers at St. Francis at Mass are way, way, way down. The attendance is one-fifth of what it ordinarily is, which is a sign of how how guarded lots of people are, and I think how uncomfortable some people are wearing masks. That's just a... Uh, Anyway, please let me know if that's a difficulty. I, I think I may ask Tim about meeting and also doing um, the online simultaneously. You know, I don't know how that'll go. I don't have the technical background to, to begin to wrestle with that, but I'll ask him and see what happens. So, But let me know, okay? Would you please, all of you? Okay, um, before we start, I, I want to mention um, five things, five things that I did not get on my notes that I'm going to, I'm going to change the notes tomorrow. Um, um, I'm going to change the notes tomorrow to get these down, but but I'd like everybody to um, keep these five notions in your mind while we go through the book. Because what I'd like to try to do tonight is not only deal with Virgil, but try to relate Virgil more directly to matters of our faith. And that's not something I typically do. I, I typically wait to do those things in wind-up, trying to put things in perspective. But there's a number of things going on. There were a number of things last night when we one thing in particular that um, that we were dealing with when we were reading Billy Budd, that had to do with natural depravity, the idea of natural depravity that I just had to take on because it was too big. There are a number of things going on in Virgil that I I just want to single out. Okay, so hold on to these. You can write them down now, keep them in your mind, or look at the notes tomorrow when I when I revise them when I go back over them. Here are the five things. One is, in the sixth book, when we get to finally Italy, Aeneas and his men are going to come to the Cume cave and see the Sibyl. On the gates of the cave, they're going to have the Daedalus story about the Minotaur. We're, we'll come to it in a minute, so if you don't know it, don't worry about it. But I want to, I want to raise this question. Um, the Minotaur was at the center of a labyrinth, and Theseus had to get there to save the Athenians, and he does. So one of one of the great labors of Theseus, now remember Theseus is looked at as the founder of Western civilization. One of the labors he had to um, go through was dealing with the Minotaur, okay? I'd like everybody to keep that in mind because the labyrinth in one sense is an image of human consciousness. That all of us live in a labyrinth, we carry it around. At the center of us is this bull figure and um, a sacrilege. I'll, I'll come to it when we get there, but a sacrilege. So the labyrinth has, is in some sense a figure, a metaphor for, it can be, for the human consciousness, and this disorder at the center of it. So uh, put this in context, Aeneas has just put the Greek world away. He's entering into an Italian world. He's entering into a new world, and he's dealing with a complexity Odysseus never dealt with. And it's, it's um, signified, we get a hint of it, 
at the outset of everything that's going to take place in Italy in this image of Daedalus and the Minotaur. Okay? So this notion of a labyrinth, just keep that in your mind. Um, the notion of reincarnation, when Aeneas goes into the underworld, he's going to meet his father, and his father is going to give him an explanation of what the souls are doing that are all around him. And he's going to introduce to us, to his son, this notion of reincarnation. It was one of the dominant beliefs at that time. Plato held the same belief. Um, the, the, the earth, the created universe, is eternal. They can't explain it. They don't know where it came from, how it came into existence, whether it's going to end. And there was a belief in the immortality of the soul, and if it did, um, it believed, people then believed that the soul was re reincarnated. It would die, come back to life again. And whatever form it took, would depend on what that person did in his life. So it was not an uncommon belief, um, this idea of reincarnation for the pagan world, okay? Virgil's going to give it to here. What's the difference between a belief in reincarnation and a Catholic belief that once we die, the soul goes to its final end? Heaven or hell? Remember, purgatory is just a stopover stage. The ultimate end is decided. It'll, souls will go to heaven or hell. What's the difference between um, those two beliefs? Okay. Um, when we get to hell, when we get to the underworld in book six, we're going to see that Virgil's layout of hell is far more sophisticated and far more differentiated than Homer's. When Odysseus goes into the underworld, there's very little differentiation between one place and another. The, the land of the blessed is there. Menelaus is there. But we don't get anything close to what we get in uh, Virgil. When we get to Virgil's hell, there's real differentiation between places that reflect the differentiation um, in people's behavior while they were on earth. When we get to Dante, we're going to see that that's true, that he learned a lot from Virgil, that hell is very um, differentiated, just as purgatory and heaven is. Everybody's in heaven when they're there. But the degrees of merit, the degrees of brilliance or light or beauty differs according to the qualities of that person's life okay? and the graces given to him by Christ. Um, the notion of evil spirits. We know that when Aeneas comes to um, Italy, that Electo, that's a, an image of a demonic force, is going to inspire people to do evil things. We don't see anything close to that in Homer. I mean, she is real evil, and she sets things in motion that lead to, that lead to civil wars and an outbreak of wars that have been quiet for a while. So the power of a demonic spirit um, we believe, we believe, as Catholics, that um, Christ let Satan have his way in the world. He's the prince of the world. In the Job story, we know, we know that it opens with this um, exchange between um, Satan and God. Satan's going to test Job, and God's going to let it happen. God gives his permission for evil so that evil is allowed to work. He gives his permission. In Virgil, we see 
something like demonic forces at work entering into people, taking hold of them, and influencing what they do. What's the difference between Virgil's way of presenting that and a Catholic view? Okay. And finally, um, um, the, the whole fact in the book of racial hatred um, and racial wars. When Aeneas comes to Italy, he's coming as a foreigner and he's disrupting everything. Um, um, Lavinia, the king's um, wife, was assuming that her daughter, Lavinia, would marry Turnus, that it would be um, a, um, a racially compatible marriage. When it turns out that that can't happen, that Lavinia is going to marry a stranger, a foreigner, the people, Lavinia, the wife, go nuts. The idea that their daughter would marry somebody who's of a different race outrages them. And it's the beginning of the racial wars that will almost tear Italy apart towards the end of the book. One of the great battles that Aeneas has to overcome that's far worse than anything um, Achilles faced. He's got, to, he's got to go to war with people who are fighting along racial lines. So whatever we make of Rome, we've got to keep in mind these things. This idea of an, a labyrinth that has to be overcome. These demonic forces that have to be overcome. The evil that's set in motion and the racial divisions. Whatever Rome is, it represents a city that had to deal with these things before it could come into existence. Is that clear? Is everybody okay? Somebody give me the list. Did I get all, did I get six down? I mean, I give you guys. That's there were five. What did I give you? Can I see that dog? Oh, is this what you? That's what just came out. Yeah. Sorry, five. The labyrinth, reincarnation, hell, evil spirits, and racial hatred. Those five, yeah. Okay. Just keep those in your mind. When we as we go through, okay. Okay, let's let's um, let's start very very quickly. Some of the important things that we've looked at for the last couple of weeks: the city, how important the city is. I've said this a number of times now, and I'm glad to say it again. Virgil was no. I you remember from our treatment, Homer's The Odyssey is the first anti-romantic narrative epic in existence. He romanticizes nothing. There's nothing black-white about Homer. That if I do this, everything will be okay. If I only do this or avoid this, everything. Whatever choice anybody makes, according to Homer, it's always going to involve suffering. Um, one, of the, one of the conditions we're faced with in our, in our world because of its fallen nature is choosing the lesser of two evils. It's not all good and all bad. It's the lesser of two evils. That plays a far more fundamental role in our makeup than I think 90% of the people in the world want to admit. Virgil's no romantic. He knows, and this is crucial, absolutely crucial, he knows that Rome is going to be built on the ashes of Troy. And I, I'm not exaggerating this. Troy has to be looked at as one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. If you look at history books, it's not going to compare with Egypt 
or Babylon, Alexandria, name whatever city you want in the, in the Asian world or African world, no city led to the writing of two epics. The, the, the only city that gave rise to two epics is Troy, the Iliad and the Odyssey. So in Homer's world, he's looking at the destruction of a city to show there's something wrong with man. A, a, a civilization is being destroyed. Connie, it's good to see you. Um, Rome is founded on the ashes of Troy. Troy was the greatest city, and it's destroyed. Um, Virgil's living 70, 70 B.C., He's telling a story about the man who's going to found Rome 1,200 years earlier. And we look at Jupiter's prophecy and historically what happened between 1,200 and the coming of Christ. It is nothing but wars and violence. So whatever Rome is, however good it is, it could not answer man's greatest longing. But Virgil is so clear about it. I think it's one of the reasons Dante chose him as his guide. Man cannot save himself. We've talked about this from those of you in Seton weren't there, but in the in the Francis group, when we went back to the origins of the city in the Bible with Cain and Abel and Enoch, who made the first city. First city represents a, an attempt on man's part to live without God when he's in exile. So the city always has this paradoxical quality. It represents everything great in man and everything fallen. Virgil is no wool-hide romantic. He knows that man alone can't save himself. No matter how great his greatness, and the city, in a sense, is the, the image of the very best he can do in the world, that he can create this world in which he believes he can be self-sufficient, it will never answer. Never. So even though this whole thing is growing to this extraordinary city, we know that for Virgil, he knows that as great as it is, and it's probably the greatest thing, I think for Virgil, the greatest thing that man could do, it still won't, it still won't answer. There's something, there will be something missing. Um, we're getting the whole Trojan story from the view of the defeated, not the victors. So we're learning the cost of defeat, of suffering. There's not a chapter that takes place in the first six books that doesn't involve some serious loss. I'll go through that in a minute. Um, um, in last class, we looked at all the, what I would call the dying cities. When Virgil gets to Carthage, he tells the, his stories of his adventures to Dido, and his adventures consist of attempts to found a city. Now think about the difference between that and um, the Odyssey. Odysseus has all these archetypes to deal with. Aeneas is trying to... This is so extraordinary. It's so extraordinary. He's right on the verge of Christianity. It just amazes me. Aeneas is um, engaged in um, an ordeal of suffering constantly. He has to bring into existence something new. Remember, it's a calling. He doesn't know where it is, what it's going to be and every attempt fails. The Aeneid, the first city, remember he, he attempts to found right off the shores of, um, of Turkey where he is? Um, he pulls up the bush and it bleeds and it speaks out. 
um, a betrayal had taken place there. Episode after episode after episode, we see Aeneas attempting to found a city and something going wrong. Um, when they got to um, Pergamum, they managed to survive a year, but they were overtaken by plagues and everybody was dying. They had to leave again. When they got to Buthrodum, which to me is one of the most touching episodes involving these cities, he meets Helena and Andromache. Andromache, remember, was Hector's wife. And there, what he see, what we see, I'm not sure how aware he is of it, what we see is um, um, a dying copy of Troy. The riverbed's dead, it's dried out, the little river um, is narrow, the, the sky and gates are there. It's, it's like the Trojan attempt to copy the prototype, the original Troy. So Aeneas is learning, presumably, and we're learning that, that the, the calling that Aeneas has is to carry the past forward, redeeming it. He cannot go back to the past because if he does, he'll die. And I, I tried to use the example of a family, you know, and I, I just, I mean, I'm, Suzanne and I are parents. We, you know, we struggled raising our kids. And, and you can imagine how much I did make it easier because I had all this, you know, Virgil in me. Or, that parents have this task of um, creating something new, particularly if you're Christian. I mean, the whole... The whole end of Christianity as a new man, in Christ, redeemed, bearing our past, picking up our sins. The first call of, in, in Christ's ministry was repent. He opened his ministry by saying repent. So man is asked to acknowledge his sins, to go to him for help and change, become transformed. In one sense, that's what's going on in the Aeneid. That Aeneas has to carry his past forward. He cannot go back to the past. He cannot rest in it. He has to create something new. And whatever that new thing is, he's not clear about. So last week we looked at all the dying cities um, and their importance. And we ended with um, the episode with Dido. Um, remember when he goes there, he, he looks at the Trojan War on the temple and he sees these great heroic deeds. And... Um, I, I think it's one of the great ironies of the book because he sees himself as a hero depicted in these stories when he himself has been failing for seven years to do what the gods have asked him to do. And then he stays with Dido for a year and finally Mercury comes to him and remember Aeneas is dressed up in purple, he's got jewels on his sword, he's looking um, luxurious and somewhat effeminate and Mercury scolds him. Um, Aeneas is so terrified, his hair stands on its, on its end. He tells Dido that he has to leave. He leaves. She commits suicide. The last image we get when he's leaving Carthage is of Carthage burning. So in one sense, I think we're getting um, a proleptic image, a, a foreshadowing of the Punic Wars when Carthage will go down. And I suggested then that it was Virgil's way of showing, once again, um, the importance of our actions in time. Because the way he read Homer, which I think is pretty profound, the Greeks tended to live in an idealized world. The Romans were far more rooted in time. Um, and, and 
Virgil sees that the Punic Wars really had their origins hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in this affair. So he's showing the dangers of the, 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 the consequences of illicit sex. Um, so it's a, it's, a profound, it's a profound image of the genesis of the Punic Wars. And that image of, of um, Carthage going in a flame is, is, is an image of what finally will, you know, one day happen. Sorry, Doug. I was just going to say, in putting off the gods. Oh, did you all hear that, what Suzanne said? Say again, Doug. So it's not just illicit sex. He was putting off the wishes of the gods that he could go found his city. What the gods asked of him. Did everybody hear that? Okay. So those were the major things taking us through um, book four. I, what I'd like to do is just, I'd like to quickly review five, six, and seven, and then look at concrete passages to get us back into the book again and root it again. So before, before I do that, any questions or comments on what we've done so far? Ann, go ahead. Come on. I have a question. Yeah. When we talk about the racial differences were the trojans similar to the turkish wow well they were easy i mean they were they belonged to that area and what's today is modern turkey so they were asiatic in that sense the mid-east okay. except the and this is going to get this is god oh god oh. and let me say that and leave it there okay because That's we in when we next week when we meet um, Aeneas is going to go to Evander and ask for help because these wars are going to begin and he has to get allies to help him. And he's going to learn something from Evander that I, I think is one of the most touching things in the whole of the Aeneid. That he's going to learn, I've said this before, but I, it's not going to mean as much until we meet next week and then we actually read it. Aeneas is going to learn that he's coming home. So even though his most immediate origins are Troy and modern Turkey, that, that, you know, that Mideast coastline, he's going to learn that he actually belongs to an ancient past that goes back to Saturn when Saturn was exiled and driven as a, as, as a, this, as a refugee. Saturn, the god, was driven as a refugee to Earth and had his home, his beginnings, in Italy. So Italy and Rome are going to take on these dimensions of meaning that are just extraordinary. But so most immediately he's Trojan, uh, um, what, what we would know today as modern Turkey. But we learn that, that, that his real beginnings go back much farther. So that in one sense, and this is where Eliot gets, Eliot gets his stuff, in my end is my beginning. He, he didn't know it when he set out, but he's actually going back to his beginnings. It's an amazing paradox, but any other questions or comments before we start on the, the middle of the book? Okay, um, here, just a quick. In book five, Aeneas is leaving Carthage and he's driven off, off course again by a storm. And um, and he's forced to make land, and when he does, he celebrates the anniversary of his father's death. Because remember, Anchises died 
just before they made landfall at Carthage a year ago. Excuse me. So he holds funeral games, um, which, which are, which is Virgil's way of remember recalling the Iliad because in the Iliad, remember, it's Patroclus's funeral games that they celebrated there. Except here, it's not a friend; it's his father. In the middle of the of the uh, games, Ascanius um, discovers that the women have set fire to the ships because a large group of women have become so worn out by the journeys, remember they've been traveling for seven years, that they despair of going on. So a large number of want, a number of them want to quit and they set fire. The men come, Aeneas says a prayer, and the rains come safely, um, providentially to help. They lose four ships um, and they have to make a decision about what to do and, and we'll read it. Um, they, they decide to leave um, some of their community there, largely the women who didn't want to go on, which says something because what he's saying is the rest of this ordeal will require far more than people are usually more willing to give. Um, and I, I may forget it, so I want to say it now. It's hard for me to read that section without seeing the Jews in the desert and their constant um, those constant sages of not wanting to go on because the ordeal was too hard and the anger of God when he reached those moments with them. Um, and um, they set off again without minus four ships and as they go their the head um, the, the crewman who's directing the, the, the head ship in their in their journey um, falls asleep and is pushed overboard, Palinurus. I want to look at that too. In book six, we come to Italy, finally. Just before he gets there, he will lose his nurse. We will look at that. And he comes to Cume, where he will meet the Sibyl, the prophetess of the cave. Um, Anchises had called him there. Now he asks for the Sibyl's help to go into the underworld. It's, it, it involves all sorts of mystical kinds of activities, but he does enter the, in, um, the underworld and it's there that he will meet Anchises and it's there that he will receive, finally get clear on his calling. He knows exactly now where he's going. And it's interesting for all of us reading that he doesn't get that clarity until he gets to the underworld. Okay. Um, Let's see. Um, he comes out of the underworld having to choose between two gates, between the gates of ivory and the gates of horn, and we have to look at that closely because of the one he chooses. And then he comes back into the world. When we get to book seven, we're introduced to Latinus, the king of Italy, and um, we early on get a description of a prophecy that was given that Lavinia, his daughter, would marry somebody from outside their race. When the wife um, hears that, she is outraged. She doesn't want it to happen. And Juno in, um, calls on um, a, a kind of demonic figure um, um, who comes down and inspires this madness in the women who want to protect their racial purity. And um, inspires Turnus to become outraged because he he had planned to marry Lavinia, the king's daughter, 
um, and gain power because of that marriage. And um, the dark force also um, inspires a, the the Trojans are hunting. They're starting to be, they're starting to build a city. They think they're home, so they build this fortress, these cities. They think that's where they're going. And they're out hunting, and Ascanius um, kills a deer the way he would kill any deer. They're going to eat. But it turns out that the deer is the favorite of one of the um, royal figures in the family. She's outraged, and immediately a, a war is set up between the foresters and the huntsmen and the Trojans. So a war breaks out there between the Trojans and the Latins, and... Um, and between Turnus and Latinus, the king. Um, when the king learns about all of this, he's going to withdraw. And if any of you have seen the uh, tokens, the Lord of the Rings, you'll remember how rare it is for there to be a good king. That some of the kings just withdraw. I mean, they, they become so self-absorbed in their power that they withdraw. The king does here. Um, and pulls out of the war so that right at the outset, shortly after Aeneas arrives at Italy, intending to found Rome, he's facing political divisions, um, family divisions, and racial divisions everywhere. He's going to have to overcome all of those to have any chance of founding this city. Okay, That's just a, a quick um, summary. Um, okay, let, any questions? I want to look at passages in the book now to get us in the book. When we go through it, too, I'm going to try to um, relate some of these things to those five notions I asked you to keep in mind when we started. 120, let's go to 127. Um, Aeneas is about to hold his um, his funeral games. Um, I I don't want to spend any time because uh, we just don't have the time that I would like to in this. But I want to take a minute with the the uh, chariot race because it, it lines up so well with what happened in the Iliad but um, on page 137 he Aeneas brings out all of the prizes just the way Achilles did and the major event is the chariot race just as it was in the Iliad and if you remember it um, the the man who was expected to win in the Iliad got dumped um, and came in last and then two of the men, um, Demodocus and, and, and Menelaus, quarreled because Demodocus seemed to cut Menelaus off. <clears throat> and Demodocus is younger and Menelaus is older and took it as, a, as an insult. A, a, remember, so important, Achilles settled it all. The Iliad opened with a quarrel that was unsettled. It ends with a quarrel that Achilles settles. Here, this, a similar sort of thing happens on page 137. Aeneas brings out his prizes. The, the guy who was expected to lose, one, the, the guy who wasn't expected to win, um, trips. And because of his love of one of the competitors, he trips up the man who is leading, who should have won. 
So the head man gets tripped up and he doesn't get first prize and Aeneas has to settle these quarrels and does. I don't want to go through it except to say this um, because it's something lots of you who've never read this won't see, but the two men involved were Nisus and Eurelius. Okay? Eurelius trips up a man so that Nisus, who's the man he loves, I think they're lovers, the man he loves can come in. And the only reason I want to touch on this right now is not because of the chariot race, it's, it's, it's in so many ways like the Iliad, but it's a little bit different, is because one of the major episodes that's going to take place in a couple of books involves these two men. They're going to go on a night raid, just the way Diomedes and Odysseus, in book 10 of the Iliad, Diomedes and, and uh, Odysseus go on a night raid. And they end up beheading all these Trojans and coming back with all this booty when they were supposed to go out and scout, you know, to get information. Um, here, we're going to meet two men who are, who, who love each other. I mean, let me leave it at that way because nothing more is said about them. And what happens is going to be really sad. Um, but we, we get a, um, a, um, a Ford, um, we get a scene involving the two men here. Um, Aeneas learns about um, the women setting the ships on fire, and then um, they have to make a decision about what to do. Um, on page 147, um, Juno sends Iris down, and Iris takes on the figure, the disguise of Beroe, one of the women on page 147 and she says miserable women that we are whom Noah Kyan hand dragged out to death under the walls of our old fatherland unlucky nation for what final blow is fortune keeping you alive we've seen the seventh summer since the fall of Troy and we're not settled who prevents our building here a town for town dwellers country of our fathers dear hearth gods rescued from the enemy to no end to no end we're not settling It'd be a little bit like a married couple going on and on trying to find a job and the wife coming at some point and saying what's the point of this we're still wandering um, shall I not see on earth Simoi and Xanthos those are the two major rivers Hector's rivers come now all of you said fire to those infernal ships with me I dreamed the clairvoyant Cassandra's came with um, burning torches, offering. Cassandra was one of the prophetesses um, who, who foretold about the um, Trojan War. One of the older women on page 148 says, Stop! Do not take her for Baroe. She says, It's not her. I tell you myself, um, um, Stop. Vexed too that she alone missed our observance and paid no tributes to Anchises. The real woman is back sick. Um, but the women set fire in any case, and um, and now the men have to make a decision. They've lost four four ships, and um, one of Aeneas's elders gives him this advice on page one fifty. Sir, born of an immortal, let us follow where our fates may lead. Lead us back, whatever comes go down. Now these ships are burnt. Hand over to him the number of those they might have carried. Those too weary of your great quest, your seafaring men who have had long lives, women worn out 
on shipboard, feeble men afraid of danger. Set them apart, let them have their city here in this land, the tired ones, and they may with permission call their town Hesesta. So they stay and the rest of the company goes on. And I want to look at what happens in a moment. But any thoughts about what's going on? What does this say about Rome? Anything to any of you? Well, going it says to me, Bob, I mean, we've heard several times that it's going to be hard. They're not going to just walk in and found the city. I mean, Aeneas and his crew already know that. But it's going to have to be hard fought. And that it's not for the weak of, weak of heart to, to undertake that. It's not a simple walk in and claim it kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And if people are not ready to give up a lot, they're not going to be ready to come, bro. Yeah, good. Um, let me, I want to, if I can for a second. One of the, um, as I said earlier, I think when I just gave a, um, a brief summary, it's hard for me to read these passages without seeing the Jews in the desert in Exodus and wondering more strongly if, if Virgil hadn't read Old Scripture. There's a lot of evidence that he did. Um, one of the one of the ways of looking at what happens in the Exodus chapters of the Old Testament is that the, this is really important. A whole generation had to pass in the desert for the Jews to go into the Promised Land. Why? Now stop, just stop and think about this for a second. They had been in Egypt for a long time and had become spoiled. They complained constantly saying, let us go back. Why did you take? Why are you asking this of it? If you've been spoiled and you've had your life the way you've wanted for a long time and you have to um, go through these trials and endure suffering in order to become better so that you can endure freedom and the responsibilities that come with it, what happens? So a whole generation had to pass away and, uh, and toughen another generation enough to take on the responsibilities of the freedom that the Jews were being offered in the Promised Land. So um, it's a long ordeal and not everybody would make it at the end, um, those who are most committed. It just reminds me a lot of the, and as I think about Rome, it just seems to me it's, it's one of the wonderful things about Rome. It's going to take a lot to found Rome, but there, if you go back and look at um, Dido and her response to Aeneas leaving, she was just full of contempt and pride and despair. There's a real note of compassion here in what Aeneas does with this group. He makes a place for them. He founds it. He, um, they join with the Trojans who are already there. Um, it, it just seems to me it's, it's heartfelt. It's politic. It's wise. Um, that for these people to go on, um, particularly in view of the hardships that they faced, means that some people won't finish the journey. Um, it's not to say they won't be taken care of because they are, but it, it's interesting that that not everybody does go on in it. And it's there are, are clear parallels with what goes on in the Exodus um, books of the Old Testament. Take a look at what happens at the um, before we leave um, this world. Um, 155, the 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 crewman who's leading 
is a man named Palinurus. Um, in the middle of page 155, Now dewy night had touched her midway mark, nor nearly the crews relaxed in peace on their hard-rowing benches took their rest, when Somnus, from sleep, gliding softly from the stars, put the night air aside, parted the darkness, Palinurus in quest of you. He brought bad dreams to you and all your guiltlessness upon the high poop deck, and the god sat down in Forbus's guise and said, speaks to him, put down your head and rest for a while, but Palinurus barely looked around. He said, forget my good sense for this peaceful face. The sea puts on the calm swell. Put my trust in that capricious monster or hand over Aeneas to tricky winds when I have been deceived so often by clear weather. He makes it clear that he's doing everything he can not to be deceived into sleep. He's going to hold his duty. He's going to keep the ship. Now, sleep comes over him on the next page, 156. Now, see the god his bow adrip with Lethe's dew, slumberous with Strygian power, giving it a shake over the pilot's temples to unfix, although he fought it, both his swimming eyes. His unexpected drowse barely begun. Somnus leaned over him and flung him down in the clear water, breaking off with him a segment of the stern and steering north. That is, he did not want to give up his position. He takes part of the boat with him when he goes under. Um, can any of you make the parallel with the Odyssey? Do any of you remember something like this? Because remember, in so many of these things, what Virgil is doing is rewriting the Iliad and the Odyssey, and in this case it's mostly the Iliad, or I mean the Odyssey. Well, uh, Odysseus lost his entire crew after they had uh, visited the island of, uh, uh, with, with the cattle. And right, they, right. Uh, eating the cattle. Right. Uh, they, by, by, a, by a storm. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably going to... Two things to remember about Odysseus's journey just right now. We didn't... I don't think we went over this, but... And I don't want to go back to it right now. When Virgil... When Aeneas gets to the Cyclops Island, he discovers this man there that was left behind. If you go back to the Odyssey, do we have given any anything that would lead us to believe that Odysseus left anybody behind? No. Absolutely not. No. This is Virgil's way of once again showing how irresponsible Odysseus is because he tends to look out too much for himself and not his men. And remember I touched on this. When Odysseus goes into the cave, it's for curiosity. He's curious. He puts his men in danger. A number of times his men try to persuade him from doing something, like you know, going by the sirens when he had to put wax in his ear so he could get it. Aeneas is a different hero. He's a completely different hero. He, he, he looks out for his men. He doesn't want to lose any of them. So when Aeneas comes to the Cyclops island, he discovers a man who was left behind. That's Virgil's way of showing something wrong with Odysseus and Homer's way of the Greek way of looking at the world. Okay. 
One of the other things that happens in those, um, in those adventures is when Odysseus is with Circe and he leaves, one of the men is left behind. It's Elpenor who falls off the roof. And he will meet Elpenor in the underworld. He didn't know he lost him. Okay? Here Aeneas loses a man. But notice the difference. In, in the Odyssey, Elpenor falls off the roof because he's drunk and you know, overdoing things. Um, Palinurus is doing everything he can to do what's right. He even breaks off part of the tiller because he doesn't want to let go of it. But he dies, and he's guiltless. Okay? Now, one more thing. I want to put this together. I want to look at the underworld. But before we do, let me, let me go there quickly. I think this is the beginning of... I've had my glasses... My eyes, don't we? Um, sorry. Well, good. On the first page of book seven, in on page one ninety-five, after Aeneas leaves. Um, the Sibyl's cave, and he's visited the underworld, he sets off for the Tiber River. So he's going to go north up the coastline of Italy to the Tiber, where he will finally come home. But here, before he goes home, notice the opening lines of Book 7. Nurse Cade of Aeneas, in death you too conferred your fame through ages on our coast, still honored in your last bed as you are, and if this gory matters in the end, your name tells of your grave in great Hesperia. She will be honored forever. When he had seen Cata's funeral performed, her mound of tome heaped up, Aeneas waited until the sea went down, then cleared her harbor under sail. Into the night he goes off. He will pass by Circe's island, unlike Odysseus. Okay. Now just before we go any farther, why does Virgil put in this Palinurus episode and... Um, why does he put in this episode with Aeneas's nurse who dies before he gets to um, the Tiber River? Those are clear variations on these Odyssean themes. It's just these are two more instances in which Virgil is doing something to change the or the Odyssey in a way that says something about Rome. What are your thoughts? Anything? Palinurus is the pilot. He's guiding the fleet. And um, the god pushes him overboard. Any thoughts here? What does this say about Rome once again? Let me comment this a different way. I'm going to ask you guys for some help here because my memory is really going to, but let's for a moment together if we can list all the things that Aeneas has had to give up. Because right now, right at this moment, Aeneas, well, just slightly before this, just before book six, where he arrives at Italy and goes into the underworld, Aeneas left the Greek world behind entirely. He, cra he crossed the Aegean Sea from Greece to Italy. 
That, this mark, symbolically in the book, it can't be more important. That Greek world is left behind. So everything that's been familiar to him in the first part of his voyage, the first six books, gone. He is now going to Italy and something entirely new. And I can't put this strongly enough because remember, remember, let me try to put this historically. So all the Romans, Cicero, Caesar, all of them, Brutus, all of those men would have been well-educated and they would have been educated in Greek classics. There's a good likelihood they would have known the Greek language. They certainly would have known the Stoics, Plato, Aristotle. You know, they would have known them all. They were raised on them. But they also saw that there was something in their mind that was wrong about the Greeks. We have just left that Greek world behind and we're on our way to Italy. So why this Palinurus episode and why this episode involving Cato the nurse? What's going on in Aeneas's... What does this say about Rome? What does this say about Rome? question oh <laughs> you expect me to <laughs> Maria you expect me to remember what I just said you, you know how impossible it is what you're asking God this person who has no memory and you're doing that to me the the question it's 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 obvious I mean God my questions my questions drive me nuts I can't imagine what they do to you guys the the, the Romans were well educated they, they knew. Um, there's a book written by Cicero in which he criticizes Socrates indirectly. He admires Socrates, this great philosopher. But there are things that he says about him that make it clear that he questions some things about Socrates that Socrates would not have, even though Socrates is a great questioner. The Romans were aware that the Greeks were a great, great people. Let me put it even strongly. If you look at the world at that time, anywhere in the world, Africa, Asia, anywhere, Nothing, nothing comparable is taking place. Something happens in Greece and in Jerusalem that's not happening anywhere in the world. God has called out a people, right, in the Mideast. Abraham's called out. He's going to found the 12 tribes. Something extraordinary going on. Something extraordinary is going on in philosophy and literature and history in Greece. Was the, 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 the most rationally educated people in the world. They came to an understanding of the power of reason that no other culture had come to. It's the beginnings of everything we know as the West. It was like a major turn away from barbarism. So the, the Romans had nothing but admiration for the Greeks. They were an extraordinary people. But they also had some sense that there was something wrong. Okay? Now, my question here is, Aeneas has just left the Greek world. He's turned the cape, right? He's turned the cape. He's going up. He's leaving the Greek world. And the two, two of the episodes that mark this part of the journey are the loss of Palinurus, the pilot, and the nurse, Cata. And my question is, what's, why did he do that? What's Virgil doing? What's he saying about what's happening at this moment as Aeneas heads on to found Rome. This is all about this extraordinary city in the way that I've been trying to describe it. 
not like some people may not be fit for this new city? I certainly think that's true of what happened with the the men and women at um, that were left behind. Um, and there was a big deal made in the underworld about his need to bury be buried, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it occurs to me that that perhaps Aeneas is losing his support structure. He and the rest of the people who are going to found Rome no longer had the same pilot. They had a helmsman who came in or someone who came in and took over the helm because Neptune had promised. But he's also learning, losing his nurse who had raised him and cared for him. So he's got to do this on his own. It's brand new and the ties to who might lead him from the old are now going away. And, be, and be, yeah, right on. So be, I want everybody to be clear for me. Who's the nurse in the Odyssey? Okay, I'm going to give you guys a quiz. Five minute quiz. Get your paper and pencil out. I don't remember her name. <laughs> Come on, you guys. We, we, the, wait. We're only two-thirds of our way through the journey. Where are you guys going to be? Where are we going to be here? Eurycleia. Eurycleia, remember? So who, where's the nurse in the Odyssey? She's home. Odysseus comes home to his nurse. Remember, she's the one who recognized him. She bathes his feet. She, 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 she bathes his feet. She's the one who recognizes it. She'll be there through the end. So she's part of that home he comes back to. Kaeda is a nurse that has to be left behind. I, I think Sue put it right on. I mean, really, really well. He's got to go on without that help. And it's interesting that Palinurus dies. If you think about Elpinor falling off Circe's roof, you know, in the, in the, in the Odyssey. Palinurus is guiltless. He does everything he can to stay true to his task to lead this ship. I, I think it's Virgil's, I mean, anybody jump in here, but this is my thought on it. I think it's Virgil's way of saying, it's not just those who merit. When you're undertaking a, a hard task like this, you're going to lose people who don't deserve to be lost. We know that. People go into war all the time, and some people die that you think would have been the one to survive. Yeah, and it's not always going to be the heroic or the brave. or um, Sometimes the very best men get lost. Palinurus was a good man. I think it's Virgil's way of showing that a man's goodness isn't going to always protect him. With the women and some of the other men who were left behind, it's clear that they were worn out and tired, that, that they wouldn't be able to finish the task. But there's no indication that that wouldn't be true of Palinurus. So I think it's Virgil's way of saying, just before we enter this Roman world, this Italian world, he's got to give up his nurse, all the things he depends on, and there's going to be a cost that just can't be counted in terms of weakness or you know 
people are going to lose. Be good. When people get involved in it, like the Jews in the desert, when people get involved in a hardship, good people will be lost. Not just... I have a thought. Go ahead. To, I walked away for but, but it's kind of like, as you were talking, I thought, it's sort of a lesson that life, I'm going to put in quotes now, life isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's not always that the good get the good, right. the bad get the bad. Life right. sometimes isn't like that, and that's what real life is, and that's what right. home is going to demand. Yeah, and, it, and, and I'm glad you put it that way. Thanks. Because in a sense, that, that's one of the attributes of Rome. You know, if it's going to survive, it, it's, it's got to make a play. It can, you know, if you look at the modern utopia in, in America, if, you know, this ideal world that we're going to have, it doesn't make place for any of this stuff that we're talking about right now. It just doesn't. Um, this is grounded in reality, hard realities, tough losses. Now, let me go back to my question. Wait, um, by the way, before we do that, what's the difference between losing a friend in a funeral and burying a friend and burying a father before we go any farther? What's the difference there between bar- Achilles buried Patroclus? Because his father was part of him. It's, it's, it's a direct connection to his heritage and yep. his past. Yeah. So that's a huge thing. Yeah, and his life. He wouldn't have a life without his dad. Um, so before we go on, I want to get to the underworld quickly because we're, we're getting near time. Quickly, can, we, can all of you join in? What are some of the things that Aeneas loses in these first six books? Can we name some of them? We're, gonna enter, we're leaving the Greek world. There's been a major loss in every book, every chapter. Major. It's it's been in the nature of his quest that there are going to be heavy costs. Aeneas carries a sorrow with him that I would say Achilles and Odysseus don't. A depth of sorrow, anyway. Can you name some of the things that have been lost? Life or home. Troy itself. The city's destroyed a whole way. What else? Of course, his father. His father. His wife. His wife. Creusa. And even Dido. You can argue that Dido was a loss for him. It was something he had to sacrifice. Right, right. He didn't, yep, right. Right. Palinurus, his nurse. Um, Some of the ship's company. Some of the ship's. Every chapter, every chapter involves a major loss. He's had to lose something as he goes on. So it's not like he can say, um, I'm not going to go on if I'm going to lose anybody. The cost is too great. If he were to say that, he'd be back in his old world. Yeah? Part of his journey means giving up things. Um, that he he does not want to give up. So once again, I mean, just to reinforce it before we leave this Greek world, um, you know, we've been talking about the importance of the city and the importance of a calling, that this is the first epic that really explicitly deals with the nature of a calling, that that the hero has a divinely appointed task the gods have asked something of him, 
and he wants to fulfill it. He sets out to fulfill it and keeps getting it wrong again, 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 again. And, and meanwhile, during that ordeal, he's constantly having to suffer. He's been wandering. Every effort at a founding has failed. For seven years, he's failed. And one of the biggest failures has to be um, his experience with Dido because he's there for a year. Yeah, he gave himself until the gods finally come and get angry at him and say, get on, what are you doing here? So every chapter involves a major loss, okay? I want to turn quickly to the underworld. Any, any thoughts or questions before we go on? We're about, we're about, we're getting close to the end now. Any questions? Nope. Okay, um, let's book six. When Aeneas comes to um, Cume, he comes to the cave temple of the Sibyl, and on the walls he sees the story of the Minotaur and um, Daedalus. I, I don't want to go into it because it's too complicated, but the backstory story is that, um, is that Minos, the king of um, Crete, had made a promise to Poseidon if he got something. Poseidon gave him this beautiful minotaur, this stunning image of power and strength. I really want everybody to hold on to this. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure I can do this credit, but so take every word I'm saying Poseidon gave him this extraordinary, handsome, powerful-looking creature, this minotaur. Uh, Minos' wife um, fell in love with it, Pasephae. So we have an image of a woman falling in love with brute power. And let me try to put this as directly as I can. And um, as a punishment, um, the the... The, Minot the Minotaur is put in this effigy that, and uh, Pasephae, the wife, falls in love with it. The Minotaur is an unholy image of brute lust and power. And the wife is um, attracted to it. Now let me, <laughs> let me try to be direct and I wish I could be tasteful here, but I'm not sure that I can. Imagine a man and woman coming together. Think about the way in which some men are attracted to beauty. Think about Paris and his attraction of Helen. That's what set the Trojan War going. Turn it around and imagine some women falling in love with a man because of his physical stature, his sense of strength or power. You know, that she would be enamored of that because think about what that man could do with his power. She has that except the, the, the Greeks um, give it a mythic quality. They show that it's far more powerful than... Most people think those things are. But at the center of this story is the Minotaur who was put in a labyrinth. And Minos, the king, um, threatened Athens. And in order to avoid being destroyed by Minos, the, the Greeks agreed to give sacrifices, seven men and seven women, annually to avoid being destroyed. 
So to prevent that, Theseus puts himself among, among them and gets into the maze, and, um, and Ariadna helps him out by, by giving him a thread so he can find his way out. So it's her love of him that gets him out. Um, but remember, Theseus is the figure, the mythic figure who's the founder of Western civilization. This is one of his, one of his great heroic exploits. So that picture is the, the story, the, the, the primary story on the walls into the underworld. So we've got a, an image of a labyrinth um, in, in which a woman has become overwhelmed in her passion for this beastly figure. Okay? And he has to go into that, through that, to get to the underworld. Any comments, any reflections of that for what that will mean for um, the rest of Aeneas's journey, all that he's got to go through? Because that story is the gateway into the underworld. Um, Virgil doesn't put things in, you know, in as an accident. He's he's asking us to see something here. Any thoughts about that before we go on? Well, I, th I think uh, along the same lines that we've just discussed, uh, especially uh, the, the episode in Sicily where uh, Aeneas finds a proper way to deal with those that don't want to go on. Th those were not the decisions that uh, came from a man who, who decided on brute force. He was not driven by brute force alone. Yeah. So if, if, if this is... Uh, a turning point for him as he's going into the underworld that you know this is an image of uh, the minotaur and what that represents versus the other way yeah let me just try to pull together a number of sexual things here because um, it seems to me what Virgil is doing is going way beyond what Homer did with um, Odysseus in the Odyssey you know that of the nine and a half years Odysseus is away eight of nine of them were with feminine figures more than, particularly Circe and Calypso. We talked about that. The sexual power that women have over men. Um, the, 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 and remember, at least my last reading on that, when Odysseus defeats the suitors, it seems to me one of the things I think we're meant to see is it's only when a man learns to become lawful himself that he can love his wife properly that all the suitors, um, Penelope was death to every one of those suitors so long as they were lawless. And what we see are images of that on the journey. Sirens, Scylla, Charybdis, Calypso, all of them. Um, that is, in one, in one sense, they, they are correlative. They, they are what the suitors find in Penelope um, that leans, leads to their ruin. It's only when a man learns to deal with those, to see them for what they are and becomes lawful, that he can love so that, that a man and woman have the kind of love that Penelope and, and Odysseus do at the end of that book. It seems to me that Virgil's going beyond that and he's far more 
conscious of the dangers of sex of sex for men and women. Sex for men and women is a natural thing. It's a natural good. It's part of who we are. Um, but the dangers of of its abuses are are grave. Um, Adias doesn't go to Circe. He passes her. He's with Dido for a year, and it's it's the it's the most self indulgent period of his struggles. In every one of the other efforts, he's trying to found a city. He completely gives that up and gives in to everything that goes on between him and Dido. He loses his nurse. Um, um, he had to leave Lavinia behind. He had to leave Dido. He's going to go on to marry Lavinia. So the man that marries Lavinia is not the, sexually the same man who left Creusa. I think what Virgil's doing is showing the gravity of the sexual act for a man and a woman. And it's interesting to me, at the center of the labyrinth is a picture of a woman who is overwhelmed by her attraction for this brute strength. Um, Aeneas is going to have to go on and fight battles. But I think, I think Virgil's showing us that if the labyrinth is an image of our human consciousness, the complexity of it, at the center of it is this, this kind of mythic sexual relationship um, if I can put it differently, Adam and Eve in the garden were one with each other. They loved God and brought that love of God to each other. After the fall, we wonder about the nature of that love. What we see in some of the tribes that come out of the founding after Enoch and Seth and Ham and you know the other descendants is all sorts of sexual disorders. All sorts of sexual disorders. So... Um, I'm not sure where to go with it beyond that, but it's interesting to me that this is the doorway into the underworld, and Aeneas cannot go on in his journey until he goes to the underworld. He has to get his calling from his dad. Let me just, I'm going to only, I'm going to just touch on something here because we're, we're close to time. When Aeneas enters the underworld, um, he... Sorry, I can't read with my... Um, the Sibyl makes it clear he cannot enter the underworld without a golden bough. On page 166... 164. She says that he can't get into the underworld without this thing. Remember that when Odysseus came to Circe's island, Hermes met him and gave him a molly. If you remember, that was a, a plant plucked from the earth. It was a molly. It was a plant. And gave it to him and said to Odysseus, you need this for protection. So when he came to Circe, she, her, she was powerless to cast her spell on him. So there was something in nature that Odysseus could use with the help of the gods to give him a protection against Circe. Here, I, I, I don't want to make exact parallels because I don't think they're exact, but, but certainly Virgil's aware of all of this and he's playing with them. Before Aeneas can go into the underworld, he has to get this golden bow. Take a look on 164. Yet no one may enter hidden depths below the earth unless he picks this bow, the tree's fruit with its foliage of gold. 
Proserpina decreed this bow as her due should be given into her own fair hands when torn away, in place of it a second grows up without fail, all gold as well, flowering with metallic leaves again. So it's something of nature, once it's plucked it will grow again. But its nature is such that it's dual. It's both natural and metallic. It's natural and gold. Um, all gold as well, flowering with metallic leaves again. So lift your eyes and search, and once you find it, pull away the bow. It will come willingly, easily. If you're called by fate, he does it. Now just, what any, any thoughts on what this golden bow is and why Aeneas would need it as a condition of getting into the underworld? It's dual in nature. Any thoughts? Underworld, there's two natures going in there. What's that, Doug? The dead and the living. The what? The dead and the living. The dead and the living, yeah. Um, one thought, just one thought, I, I think it actually think it goes to the heart of this. I'm not a, but. In, we've talked a little bit about this. In the Homeric world, the frame of reference for everything is nature. Nature. All of Homer's similes are in natural terms. He got angry like a torrent of river. He growled like a bear. You know, whatever it is, it's the simile has as its term, its principal term, something in nature. I gave you that simile last week of the storm that was described in terms of um, a private citizen calming the storm. Because for Virgil, the natural, the references for what's going on is no longer just nature. It's what man does with it. Because remember, for him, the city arises out of nature. It's something that man constructs. And what he does with it matters. So I think the golden bough in some way images that for us. That um, Doc just said that, you know, that it's going into the world is, is a twin nature. Aeneas is a living and dead. And there may be something more to that, but and maybe even connect these two things, but certainly what's important for Virgil is the city. That man was not a beast. He was not meant to be left in nature. There is something in man that rises above nature. And what he does with that matters because he can destroy himself. He can also make something good. So the golden bough is like a key. It images this that relationship, that for Aeneas to go on, that's got to be central to everything he does. It's like a key. Um, we don't have the time to go into this. I just want to point out something. Um, he, he comes to the various rivers and he's taken in, and what we see in Virgil's hell is um, a differentiated hell. There are different areas to show the evil, the less than evil, the more than evil, you know. Um, 
One of the first most important scenes takes place in the morning fields, and it's there that he sees Dido with her husband Zacchaeus. Aeneas goes, it, St. Augustine, when he read this passage, could not keep himself from weeping. When he goes to Dido to apologize, she spurns him. She can't let go of her spite. She will not let go of her spite. She turns on him and goes away, and he's left saddened in his heart. I mean, it's a painful, it's one of the most, and, and lots of poets, Shakespeare will allude to it. In fact, he did it when we, in the play that we did, um, Anthony and Cleopatra, he's talking about Dido or Didos and Aeneas in the fields. And so it's one of the saddest figures, I mean, one of the saddest experiences he had there. He goes to various places of, of the underworld. We don't have time. I want to take you to the end. On page 185, he meets with his father, finally, and Anchises says to him on 185, he gives him his um, description of reincarnation, basically. He says, 185, um, first then the sky and lands and sheets of water, the bright moon's globe. This is on 185. Um, are fed within by spirit and a mind infused through all the members of the world makes one great living body of the mass. So it's an image of like a mind that has created everything that has a body, but a mind infuses itself into everything. It's called the Spiritus Mundi. That was the name that it had, was given. Um, from spirit comes the races of man and beast, the life of birds on creatures, the deep sea contained beneath or sparkling surfaces and fiery energy from a heaven source, heavenly source, belongs to the generative seeds of these so far as they are not poisoned or clogged by mortal bodies, their free essence dimmed by earthliness and deathliness of flesh. That's very platonic. What he's saying is that spirit is good, but there's something dark about matter. It's a little bit Manichaean. It's got a platonic element to it, that something's wrong with the body. Um, this makes them fear and crave, rejoice and grieve. Imprisoned in the darkness of the body, they cannot clearly see heaven's air. In fact, even when life departs on the last day, not all the scourges of the body pass from poor souls, not all distress of life. Go down a few lines, this is 186. Therefore they undergo the discipline of punishment and pay and penance for old sins. Some hang full lengths to the empty winds, for some strain of wrong is washed by floods or burned away by fire. We suffer each his own shade. We are sent through wide Elysium where few abide in happy lands till the long day, the rough times fulfilled has, want our, has washed, worn our stains away, leaving the soul's heaven-sent perception clear, the fire from heaven pure. Now what's going on is all these souls are going to drink from the river Lethe, Aeneas sees all these souls lined up. They're going to drink from this Lethe and pass into the world again. It's a way of showing what happens with reincarnation. That there's the spirit that um, infuses all things with the body. That because of things we do with the body, we, we darken them. We go to the next life. In the next life, we have to suffer a punishment according to our sins. We work them off, we go to Lethe, drink of the water, and are returned to the world. Okay. Um, now just hold on to that, because 
Oh, we're about out of time. I want to... Um, on page 180, after Anchises shows Aeneas all these great men who are going to play a role in Roman history, so he's watching history unfold. This is all going to take place after Aeneas dies, but he sees it played out right there. Aeneas, or Anchises finally says to him, page 188-89, when his own two sons plot war against the city, he will call for the death penalty in freedom's name. Father, son, brothers will go against each other. Men will fight against each other. Unhappy man, no matter how posterity may seem these matters, love of the fatherland will sway him, and unmeasured lust for fame. So because men are so taken up by their love of political power, they will actually kill each other. Will sway him, and unmeasured lust for fame. Now see the the Deci and the Drusi there, and stern Torquatus with his axe, and see Camillus bringing the law standards home. That pair, however, matched in brilliant armor, matched in their heart's desire now, while night still holds them fast, once they attain life bright, life's light, what war, what grief will they provoke between them? So we're watching men purify themselves, and some of them knowing they're going to go into return to life and kill each other. What war, what grief will they provoke between them? Battle lines and bloodshed as the father marches from Alpine ramparts down from Monaco's walled height, and the son-in-law, drawn up with armies of the east, awaits him. Sons, sons, refrain. You must not blind your hearts to the enormity of civil war, turning against your country's very heart her own vigor of manhood. You above all who trace your line from the immortals, you be first to spare us. Child of my own blood, throw away your sword. On page 190, now he comes to the center of this calling. So after seven years of struggles, Aeneas finally gets clear on what his calling is. 190. Um, Roman, remember by your strength to rule earth's peoples, for your arts are to be these, to pacify, to impose the rule of law, to spare the conquered, battle down the proud. And Chises paused here as they gazed in awe, then added, see there, and he shows one of the men maimed by the wars. Um, um, on a top 191, oh, do not ask, about these griefs, he says, son, fate will give earth only a glimpse, um, nor let the boy live, lords of the sky. You thought the majesty of Rome too great if it had kept these gifts. How many groans will be sent up from the great field of Mars? So, Virgilus, or sorry, Anchises is saying basically, um, sons, take care of your fathers. Um, men, take care of your fatherland. This is your task, Aeneas. Um, now hold on. Remember, Rome was taken up with wars with Carthage for over a couple of hundred years. Rome almost destroyed itself with civil wars. When we read Anthony and Cleopatra, remember, the civil wars were brought to an end because for the hundred years before that, Pompey had gone against Caesar, Caesar against him. The civil wars had, ta- had, had formed the Republic. 
because it was by throwing out the kings that the Republic was brought in. So for a long period, Rome was involved with civil wars killing each other. And Caesar's from the underworld. So think about the difference between Odysseus meeting his mother in the underworld and Aeneas speaking with his father who's giving him the mission. Very, very different, okay? So here's, here's what I'd like to do next week when we start. We'll start with book, I think it's book seven, um, seven and eight. We'll do seven, eight, nine, and we'll get through seven, eight, nine. But I'd like to take up these questions that I asked you tonight. What's the difference between reincarnation? No, it's not yet, Doc. Reincarnation uh, and the Catholic notion of the immortality of soul, and who cares? This notion of the labyrinth, this notion of reincarnation. Virgil's description of hell, how's it different from Odysseus's? And how's it different from a Catholic understanding of hell? We are right on the verge of Christianity. Virgil is getting us, he's taking us right up to the edge. Christ will come just a few years. Um, and remember what I said, Dante's going to take as his guide, Virgil. He's not taking a Christian. He's not St. Augustine. He's taking Virgil as his guide. What do we learn about hell from the underworld? What have we learned about evil spirits? I hope to get to that tonight, but we wouldn't. It's in book seven. And finally, what about these racial wars? Um, what do we learn about Rome um, and the racial wars that Aeneas has to get past if Rome is going to come into existence? So those are some of the major questions. that I, I think I'd like to start with them next week, and, and then we'll... We'll look at um, books seven, eight, and is that right? Seven, yeah, seven, eight, and nine. But any any thoughts or comments before we leave tonight? All of this is pointing towards Rome. This this idea of a city that's absolutely different from anything in the ancient world. You know that 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 man can do this great thing with the help of the gods, and yet even it isn't seemingly enough. What Anchises is showing his son is that when he leaves from the underworld, and we've got to, I want to look at Aeneas going through the gates. He goes through the gates of horn. Um, or no, sorry, the, great, the gates of ivory. Why does he do that? Anchises is showing him there's this dark history of bloodshed and violence. And this is this great city that's called into being to put down the proud, to spare the conquered, to... You know, to, to do those things I just read in his um, in his uh, description of his calling. Any thoughts or comments up to this point? I'd, I'd sort of look at this as a suspense story. You know, that it's all moving towards this extraordinary thing. And what are we to think of it? What is this Rome? What is Rome? It, it will become the center of Christendom too, but... Anyway, any thoughts before we stop? Questions or? Heather, I've given you assignment. You take this to all those other teachers of yours and give them a lesson on Rome. I want to get those teachers. 
I'm serious. I, I want teachers to pass this on to kids because kids have no clue about this stuff today. By the way, in case this, you know, it, I mean, I, I think I've tried to make this obvious, probably not. Modern America has as its model ancient Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem. Those are its three models. Athens was a democracy. Jerusalem was the holy city. And Rome was the republic. We have modeled ourselves and on, all, and, and, and on Rome more than Athens and Jerusalem. Modern America, in its beginnings, saw itself as a modern Rome. Overcoming racial, a new man, all men were created equal. That racial divisions would not tear us apart. Look at what's going on today. Um, what is this thing called Rome? Any last thoughts? Maria, you look so thoughtful. <laughs> but I don't have any thoughts. <laughs> oh, I don't believe that. I do not believe that. No, you, you're too thoughtful. There's something going on in that head of yours. Okay, I'm going to say goodnight. It's good to see you all. Genuinely good to see you all. This is a... It's amazing to be doing this, to go, to go back to Virgil like this, um, it, particularly this time in our history. Um, okay, um, you all stay safe. We'll do chapters 7, 8, and 9 next week, okay? Um, and I'll see you then. You guys have a good week. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Breathe. Sorry? Breathe. I almost stopped you in the middle and said, breathe. I'm glad you did. I think I was doing okay.